carrying on <clears throat> as we've been doing for most of this year on our series of the glory of the Messiah. And we're on the home straight, if you've, if you've completely lost your place in where we've got to. <clears throat> Probably about another five weeks to go unless Richard thinks of some more to say, which is possible. He's been in India after all. And start this morning at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Easy to find. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into fairly well-known passage. There's several strands in it we could happily explore, but concentrating today on the theme of Jesus' return that the angels are talking about. It's often called the second coming, or specifically Jesus' personal, physical, bodily return to earth following the ascension. Hello? You may not have heard of him, but there's a chap called Donald Fairburn. He's one of my, my favourite theologians. <clears throat> he points out fairly obvious truth that all the initiative in the drama of redemption that's in the scriptures is from heaven to earth. So he puts it, all the arrows point down, not up. From creation, the promise of redemption given after the fall, choosing of the man Abraham and his descendants to bear the promise, coming of Jesus in the incarnation, coming of the Holy Spirit on the church. It's always... All the initiative, all the flow of grace is from heaven to earth. We don't rise to heaven by our own initiative and effort, but God's grace comes down to us. And it's the same way the next great event in the story is going to come from heaven. It's Jesus the Messiah comes down a second time. Finally, at the close of history as we know it, God the Father will, in a manner of speaking, change his address bring his dwelling place down to the world and make all things new. This is what Isaiah saw at the end of his prophecies and John sees in Revelation right at the end of our scriptures. Jumping ahead a bit. Let's go back a step or two to the event started with in Acts. Jesus' ascension from earth to heaven. We know that Jesus had risen from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, 23. He's the embodiment of the promise of the resurrection for those that trust in him. And through him, we have a promise, which another more popular theologian, Tom Wright, puts, of 
there'll be a final creative or recreative action by God for which the Easter resurrection was the prototype and the source. I quite like that. So final creative or recreative action by God for which the Easter resurrection was the prototype and the source. In the meantime, there's a period of time, period of grace between the ascension and Christ's return during which the gospel can be proclaimed and Christ's gather. As it says, the full reward of his suffering. So for now, there's a unique state of affairs. There's a real, living, resurrected human body in heaven. We don't know how that's possible, but somehow, in the grace of God, the incarnate Son comes to the Father, sits on the throne of heaven while keeping a human body. Which gives some idea, perhaps, of how different your resurrection body is going to be from the one you've got now might want to ponder that one, especially if the current model creaks a bit. It also points to the fallacy of the idea that heaven is all about disembodied spirits, possibly on clouds, and there's no physical reality in heaven. God's presence has physical things as well as spiritual things in it. Anyway, the point is that Jesus isn't physically with us now. He's certainly present. We've sung, we've celebrated present in lots of important ways, the spirit, the word, sacraments we've shared, prayer, other people, particularly the poor and oppressed. But without wanting to diminish any of that, what we don't have at the moment is his personal presence that we can look at and touch, if you like. He's left for a time. I think Richard spoke a couple of few weeks ago about the ascension, looked in more detail what was happening there. But at the risk of confusing things, confusing terminology, when Jesus himself speaks of his coming in the Gospels, he's usually quoting or alluding to Daniel 7, verse 13, and the prophecy around that. So the coming he's talking about is his vindication after his suffering. He's coming to the Father in glory, taking his seat with the Ancient of Days that we see in Daniel. So a lot of the time, it's true to say in the Gospels, he's talking about the ascension rather than his final return. And there's a pattern in a lot of his parables about masters or kings or other people leaving for a time, leaving servants to get on with it, or tenants, and then coming back to to reckon with them at the end of the story. And obviously there's important lessons, we'll get back to some of these in a minute, about working faithfully while the master's away, using the time wisely and so on. But if we think of the way Jews of Jesus' day would have heard them, they'd have heard some of these stories differently to us. The prevailing mood was that the prophecies seen in Ezekiel 10 and 11 would, would, would soon be fulfilled. God, having left the temple at the time of the exile, would one day return to Israel and put everything right. So the parables like that, they, they fit with the idea of, a, of the Messiah coming to Jerusalem and the, and the temple, more than about the glorified Jesus coming back after the ascension. So we could say that Jesus said relatively little explicitly about his return. Given how much trouble the, his disciples had had understanding his teaching, about how he'd be persecuted and killed when he went to Jerusalem, it's perhaps not surprising that he didn't go on and teach them about his ascension and return and so on. And obviously in scripture 
events repeat themselves in new ways. We've seen that several times in, in this series. There's foreshadowings in some events of later events in, in Jesus' life. But it doesn't seem to be too big a part of his teaching at that point. Perhaps we don't want to apply some of these parables too literally to try and work out the, the events. There's been oceans of ink spent on trying to work out his uh, the exact events of Jesus' final return. We're sticking this morning with he will return. Keep it simple. So, are we saying that his death, resurrection, ascension were the whole story? With perhaps the final destruction of Jerusalem and, and, the, and the Jerusalem temple in AD 70 was the proof that Jesus uh, was, was speaking the truth. Well, not at all. After the Gospels comes the rest of the book. And the rest of the book is full of references to Jesus' return. <clears throat> Acts states clearly, we read it a few moments ago, the same Jesus who has gone from you into heaven will return in the same way that you saw him going to heaven. He'd been lifted up, taken out of their sight, and they were told, and they clearly understand throughout the rest of the New Testament, that he's going to return. If you do a word search, there's only four books in the New Testament that don't men- explicitly mention Jesus' return at some point. That's Galatians, Philemon, 2 John and 3 John, if you're interested. It's clear that all the writers knew at the time of God's choosing, Jesus would be back in person. And they use a nice Greek word, parousia, quite a lot. It would take place at some point. Yes? Oh, sorry. I thought my attendant at the back was keeping me loud. Never mind. I'll go up there. We'll, we'll sort out the domestic later. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. As Paul particularly says an awful lot about the prosia. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and so on. So it's worth noting before we pile into the rest of the New Testament that even if your favourite translation always translates parousia as coming, that's a little bit misleading. Its underlying meaning is about presence. And that's presence as opposed to absence, not Christmas presents, for the benefit of anyone that's confused. Obviously when you've been absent, you've got to come back to be present, so there is an element of coming involved, but... The really important part is to be present. And it's not an exclusively Christian word in the first century. People would use it in pagan worship to describe when the times when a god seemed particularly close or miracles or healings were happening. You could use it as Josephus, the Jewish historian, did about the Lord and Israel to describe a god coming to the aid of a nation. That's a parousia event. You could also use it to describe the visit of a VIP. If a king or an emperor pays a personal visit to a city, that's Perusia. The emperor's rule is obviously there all the time. If you're in the empire, you're subject to the emperor. But a personal visit was something special, a great coming to the city. So when Paul and others want to say that the moment they knew the presence of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus is with them, but they expect today when he's going to be physically back. The obvious term is parousia. It's got the right technical meaning, and by implication, compared to the parousia of emperors, this is going to be 
the ultimate one. More than, you know, the Emperor of Rome claimed to rule the world, but in the end, he's just another man. He dies like any other man. You bury him like any other man. Jesus' return is going to be different. The writers, like Paul, are trying to describe and understand things that the prophets before Jesus and even his disciples hadn't really got the hang of in advance. That the Messiah, when he came, he wouldn't triumph in one huge cataclysmic battle with their human oppressors and then kingdom glory forever sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. He'd wrecked their understanding by his death, then renewed their hopes by rising from the dead, and then confused them some more by his ascension. I think it's probably true to say that apart from Jesus himself, no one really involved in, at the time envisaged this sort of a gap between the Messiah revealed and the Messiah in full, visible, enthroned possession of his kingdom. But delay doesn't mean that the final act's not coming. And Paul uses a whole series of pictures to describe what will happen. A few weeks ago, I think it's four weeks ago, Richard described Jesus' triumph on the cross and his resurrection in terms of a triumphal procession, with Jesus taking his captives, supporters, the prisoners he'd liberated, all into glory with him. And that's the Daniel 7 kind of thing, Uh, coming to glory, coming to the, the the throne of God. And the audience, if you want, is, is the defeated principalities and powers, and on one hand, and the welcoming host of heaven and the Father on the other. Relatively few humans saw the events of that first Easter, and of those, even fewer understood it. Paul also uses the idea of a triumphal procession. We're here to visualise Jesus' visible return to earth. And that's a procession that all humanity will see whether they welcome it or not. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, verse 13, the picture that Paul uses is that of a Rome, perhaps a Roman commander returning from a victorious campaign or an em- the emperor himself making a personal visit to a loyal city. So what happens is all the people that fought with him or are part of his household and his entourage are gathered in a procession coming towards the city. And then all those that are still in the city waiting his arrival and welcoming him rush out and meet him. And finally the whole crowd marches back in with him, celebrating his victories, giving him honour, maybe singing praise, who knows. And he enters the city to be welcomed, praised, perhaps dispense justice favour, that sort of thing, the way emperors do. So in Paul's visualisation in 1 Thessalonians, the return is accompanied by those that have died before the day of his return, all in their own resurrection bodies. And the welcoming crowd is made up of believers still alive on earth at the time, and they are transformed as they meet him. It's quite an extraordinary picture of both the triumph of Christ declared before all humanity and of the resurrection being made complete, if you will, in all his disciples, living and dead. Sees the first fruits of the resurrection, so now comes the full harvest, and the vindication of all he suffered as he claims, claims everything that he suffered and died for. There's another word that Paul's very fond of, which is appearing. Important word for Paul, 1 Corinthians 15.3. 
electricity. Peter used some, some very similar, fra- another important phrase as he was introducing communion. I delivered to you first importance what I also received. When Paul uses that sort of phrasing, he doesn't just mean I heard this and you might be interested. It's, it's technical language for passing on a tradition, an important tradition, something you've been taught that you're going to pass on to those you are teaching. So he says, I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. Christ died, was buried, then raised. Then come the appearances. Then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 people together. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. Disciples, apostles. Then he appeared also to Paul. The importance of all those appearances is to show that the promise of the resurrection is, is solid. If Christ is raised, then we'll be raised, which is what Paul goes on to say at verse 19 of the same chapter. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But there's an order, a sequence. Each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then later on in the same chapter, that final, when Paul is definitely talking about the final appearing, the parousia appearance of Christ, he says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. But the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come, will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in case you think this is just only Paul's idea, try flicking over to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. It's the same appearing word that Paul uses so much. And then the version I've used here translates parousia as coming. It's the same, same word. We'll not be unashamed. We'll be unashamed before him at his parousia. <coughs> John goes on in chapter 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When Christ appears, he'll be present with us in a new way. And that appearing will be in our world and transforms it by his presence. We have the presence of God with his people in a renewed earth. So what's the delay for? This is all so amazing to look forward to. Why hasn't it happened yet? First to say there isn't, there isn't a power vacuum <clears throat> during Jesus' physical absence. He's the Lord of all whether we see him or not. He came as the Messiah and after doing all that was required, he took his place on the throne. That's what we see in the, with the ascension, the Daniel 7 kind of vision. He's waiting, he's not locked out. Peter tackled those in his own day who thought that the end, because the end hadn't come yet, it wasn't coming at all. 
2 Peter 3, he writes about scoffers who say it's not happening. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming? It's Perusia, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And Peter's answer, God's patience. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking to them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do all the other scriptures, to their own destruction. There will be an end and a judgment. I think that's Richard will speak about that in three weeks' time. But prior to that, there's a time of God's patience while the gospel does its work. <clears throat> that brings us back to the way that devout Jews in Jesus' day, many of them, the way they'd lost sight of the promise made by God to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him and his descendant. Exactly how they expected the Messiah to establish his rule varied a bit from the very militant, perhaps typified by the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They hoped for great wars led by the Messiahs and complete destruction of all the pagans to other groups who just wanted purification of Israel and to be left alone to serve the Lord. But relatively few by Jesus' day remembered that blessing the Gentiles was part of the plan. Even Jesus' disciples, the passage we read at the beginning, they were still banging on about restoring the kingdom to Israel just before the ascension. It took some time, which is what a lot of it's played out in, in the book of Acts, the early church to grasp how far and how widely they were going to proclaim Jesus' message. That when he said to be his witnesses to the end of the earth, he meant it. And even once they'd gone to the ends of the world, they knew there were nations, even whole continents, still needing the message that their successors must go to. So today, we're still in the time of God's patience. So far, he's held back. As Peter made clear, that doesn't mean Jesus won't return at the right time and then we'll have his presence with us in all glory. So we're told to look eagerly for his return. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians, John repeats it at the end of Revelation. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. It's something we should look for, should welcome, expect at any time. But it doesn't mean standing around looking into the sky. In the time of God's patience, our job is to do the work he gives and be found faithful when he appears. To enjoy and care for the world we've got now and look for the restoration of all things when he returns. As Paul says in Romans 13.11, stay awake and do the works of righteousness while there's time. The final restoration of the world won't come to a Christ's return, but it's good to do in the meantime. The world's decaying. But the people of God can be salt, as Jesus says, to be to slow the decay, and do what's right in the face of evil.
So Christ will return and he will restore all things when he does. When that will happen is a mystery known only to God. But by the grace of God, we've got a chance to be found working when he comes. Doing the good works. Looking for him. Waiting for him. Welcoming him when he returns.